Hello, and thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene, where we exist to help people take their next step in a transforming relationship with Jesus Christ. We hope that as you listen, you are both encouraged and challenged as you take that next step in your walk with Christ. In the life of the church, there truly is no more significant times than these. And I'd like to invite you all just to reflect on what we've observed today. To think about it, that when you go home today, you witnessed something so incredibly powerful. This isn't just an empty time to where we put on a show and we uh, put on a facade of happiness or joy. This is truly a moving of God in a person's life. And we say praise and amen. Amen? I received a text earlier this week, and it said this. Thought for the day, have some guts. This is ministry, after all. Being a pastor is great. (laughs) Receiving a message like that. Have some guts. This is ministry, after all. Now, the person who sent me this message, they were making fun of me because I did, in fact, chicken out. I was halfway to Grand Rapids for a lunch meeting, started fishtailing a little bit. I'm like, nope, deuces, I'm out of here. I turned right back around, didn't finish, canceled that lunch meeting. And... But how incredibly profound that message was, is, in fact. Have some guts. This is ministry after all. As we continue in our series, as we continue through the book of Luke, we are now at a tipping point. Because as we walk through the book of Luke, Luke is doing something very specific. In the beginning, we we are introduced to Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, the shepherds, these people who have seemingly, in the eyes of the world, insignificant lives. And yet it is they who God uses. God uses them to initiate his plan, or rather to continue his plan, to reconcile, redeem, and restore his creation back to himself. And as Luke continues writing, he has this very specific purpose to to the one particular reader, Theophilus. And for the next several chapters, we are introduced to Jesus and his ministry as he goes and he teaches and he heals, he teaches and he heals, and he's inviting his disciples and he even involves a non-Jewish person and he heals that person's servant. And we see these amazing yet very challenging words from Christ. And Christ is, he's raising the dead, he's challenging the weather. He's giving teachings that are paradigm shifting, challenging the authorities on scripture, making them think, well, wait a minute, who is this guy? As he's inviting sinners and lower lay people to partake in his ministry. And it's all fine and dandy. It's actually quite fun up to this point in time if we think about it. And Jesus, he takes his followers, he takes his 12 apostles, and in the book of Luke, he he sends them out and says, I give you now the authority to cast out demons and to heal people, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Disciples are like, all right, let's go. 
And so Jesus sends them out and they come back and they're like, Jesus, we did this and this and this. And it's just this amazing thing. And, and now we're, we're seeing Jesus as he feeds 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. 5,000 men from just a few loaves of bread and some fish. And it's at this point in time, Luke stops. In chapter 9, we see this tipping point where everything seems to go from, all right, yeah, I'm going to follow this guy, this guy. I wanna, wherever this guy's going, I'm going because this guy clearly has something figured out. And then Jesus does something, well, we, we would call maybe a party pooper. All you kids out there, party pooper. Remember that. And this is where we come today. We come today in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, with one question on our mind. Is he worth it? Is Jesus worth it? This entire time leading up to chapter 9, Jesus has been doing all of this, showing who he is, demonstrating what he has come to do, teaching about this good news. And now he has challenged his disciples, am I worth it to continue? And I think back to that text that I received. Have some guts. This is ministry after all. And it gets us thinking who Jesus is, what he's doing, and is he worth it? Because things are about to get real in the life of the disciples. So if you would join me in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18, says this. Once, when Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. Elijah is just a prophet from the Old Testament, significant figure in God's plan. And still others, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked. Who do you? Say I am. Peter answered, God's Messiah. God's Messiah. Have some guts. This is ministry after all. You see, up until this point in time, the Messiah, Messiah meaning Christ. Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek. All stands for Savior, Anointed, Holy One of God. The Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world was long anticipated. People had been waiting and preparing themselves for hundreds of years, waiting for the promised Messiah. And as Jesus was introducing to the world this new reality of the kingdom of heaven, this new reality of the kingdom of God, changing people's lives, he looks at his disciples and he says, Who who does the world say that I am? And they list off prophets. They list off John the Baptist, who at this point in time had, had been beheaded. And, and all of these things other than the Messiah. And Jesus pauses. He's like, okay, that's what everybody else says about me. But let's take a minute. And he's, 
in all reality, urging the disciples to think back to everything you've experienced in this season of ministry. I raise people from the dead. I teach with authority beyond your imagination. I command the weather to change whenever I please. I feed thousands of people and I forgive sins. Now, with all of that in mind, who do you say that I am? Peter says, God's Messiah. Now for us, you and I, in today's culture, this would be a very easy answer. I would venture to say that probably 98% of us in this room right now would say, yep, Jesus is the savior of the world. Yes and amen. But what we forget is that in this culture, because of how long anticipated the Messiah was, to make this declaration, to say this about Jesus, is not such an easy answer. To declare that God's Messiah has come is to stop, pause, and everything changes. Because the minute God's Messiah is in the world, implications are huge. Because the minute we imply, the minute we assume, the minute we declare that there is a Savior, it then suggests we need a Savior. And if we need a savior, if we make this declaration, this proclamation, everything changes. Because if there is a savior, then all of a sudden he becomes the one person, the sole identity, the sole figure in history that all of us should be emulating and following to the very end. Because think about it. Let's think about a a superhero. A superman. If Superman was on earth and all of these amazing things were happening and he was doing all of these crazy things and we made this declaration, Superman's here, guess what's going to happen? This whole dynamic changes. We are all going to seek him. We are all going to find him. We're going to follow Superman because we recognize he is bigger, better, more powerful than us and we want that in our lives. And when Peter makes this declaration, everything changes. We know the end of the story. We know, yes, Jesus died on the cross. He forgave us our sins. And we live in this culture, Midwest, rural Ohio, where we all live very similar moral lives. And we can say, yeah, it's the Christian church thing to do. Yes, Jesus is Savior. My question to us, though, is do our lives answer he is our Savior? It's one thing for us to declare it with our mouths and say, yep, 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 I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I go to church on every Sunday. But how about outside these walls? If someone were to look at your life, my life, if someone were to look at my life, could they see the answer that Jesus is my Savior? This question that Jesus asks Peter The implications behind it are so much stronger than us ever being able to simply say, yeah, Jesus is, he's my savior. So we have to refocus the question, do our lives answer the question, yes, Jesus is my savior. Have some guts. This is ministry after all. But we continue Because in saying this, in saying that Jesus is the Messiah, 
in saying that he is the Savior because this implies that we then must place our faith in him, Jesus ups the ante a little bit. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm proud of you for having this realization. I didn't show this to you. You you figure this out. All the fun and games are over, though. And Jesus ups the ante, and he starts challenging, do you actually know what you're saying? Do you know what this means? Do you know what it means to declare me Messiah? And do you understand what this is going to mean for you, the person who is following me? So if we go back to the first question, is Jesus worth it? It begins with recognizing, is Jesus my Savior? Because if he's not my Savior, then the question remains, what are we doing here? What did you come to church for this morning? What are you raising your kids in the church for? If Jesus is not our Savior, then what's the point of any of this? In order to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? We first have to declare him and be able to answer the question, is he our Savior? So we continue in verse 21. Where Jesus ups the ante. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Which is intriguing in and of itself. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day be raised to life. You know, we live in a culture that rejects any kind of suffering. We live in a Christian culture that rejects any kind of suffering. And yet the very person that we claim to follow, that we claim to be our savior, the very person that we claim to have been our leader or to be our leader, the one we want to emulate, he intentionally engages with suffering. Now, hear me out. I'm not suggesting that we go running towards persecution. I'm not suggesting that we don't do everything in our power to make sure there's a world that we don't have to be persecuted. But what I'm saying is, when persecution does come, when people who are different than us, when all of a sudden policy gets placed in that we are scared of, that it's not what we want, I'm saying, why are we getting so nervous? If Jesus is our savior and he's the man who intentionally engages with suffering, then if our faith is placed in him, then what are we so scared? from? What are we so scared about? Because it's our leader, our savior, the very person who founded our faith, who walks towards suffering for you and for me. And he he tells the disciples, hey, do not tell anyone about this. Don't tell the world that I'm the Messiah. He recognized that if if the disciples truly understood who he was, they would understand he needed to suffer. Not because suffering is anything of in and of itself. It's not just the end all. We're not called, Jesus didn't just suffer for the sake of suffering. But think about it. When someone walks through a trial, when someone walks through tough times, when someone walks through the worst season of their life, and they come out the other side, still having love, peace, joy, and hope, are not the people around them so intrigued and so drawn and so 
desirous of saying, I want what that person has. Jesus didn't just go and get rejected by the leaders of that day for the sake of being rejected. He goes because in doing so, in suffering, he then allows for there to be an atonement for you and for me. But if the disciples were to go out and start announcing, God's Messiah is here, God's Messiah is here, God's Messiah, not only would they be drawing attention to themselves, saying, I'm the follower of the God's Messiah. Yeah. And not telling who he was. It allows Jesus to continue down the path of living the perfect life into suffering so that you and I might have a relationship with God. His suffering wasn't about him. His suffering was for you and for me. Suffering was needed. And here's the crazy part. Because Jesus is the man, our Savior, as we've already discussed, Jesus is our Savior, therefore he's the person that we should emulate, follow, and place our faith in, we recognize that Jesus experienced the death well before the cross. Well before the cross, because the fact of the matter is this. You and I, as we'll continue to see, you and I are called into this same death, and yet none of us are dying on a cross anytime soon. We live in such an area with such low persecution, people would wonder, are they actually Christians? But Jesus dies a death well before the cross. And he dies to the will of man in order to live in the will of God. And this is where we get hung up as humans, as Christians, as people who live in rural northwest Ohio, where where everybody looks like a Christian because we all have similar morals. Are you willing to die for the will of God? Are you willing to die to your will for the will of God? It's through Christ's suffering that we have atonement. It's through Christ's suffering that we have freedom. But it's not just in Christ's suffering and his death that we experience this freedom. Because of his death, we have freedom. But Christ goes on. And we remember the phrase, have some guts. This is ministry after all. We continue into verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man... The son of man being a phrase from the Old Testament that the first century Jews would have understood this man is calling himself the deliverer, the savior, the Messiah. The son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Christ is saying, if you, when you enter into my ministry, when you go searching for your God-given purpose, when you go searching for the meaning of life, When you go looking for something deeper and greater, are you willing to give up your life for it? Jesus suffered for others. Jesus gave up his life for you and for me. Suffering for the sake of suffering means nothing, though. Jesus calls us to take up our cross with others in mind. Think about it. You dying on the cross isn't simply about you. 
you taking up your cross daily and walking and following Jesus to, to Calvary. This isn't about you and only you. This is about you and then you experiencing God's love so that you can just demonstrate God's love to others. Friends, we bring our children to church. We talk about church to other coworkers. We talk about our Christian faith all around the world. But friends, if you have yet to experience the love of Christ, you cannot fully love your loved ones. If you are sitting here today and you claim to love your wife, claim to love your husband, claim to love your kids, and you have yet to experience the love of Christ, I'm telling you, you do not know what love is. Because we can only love fully when we have God's love in our life. We take up our cross daily, not because it's about this some altruistic thing that we do and it makes us look good. We're the heroes now. We do this because in dying to ourselves, we then put the needs of others, the desires of others, the wants of others in front of ourselves so that they might look at our lives and be drawn upward to glorify God. If we look through the life of Jesus as he heals and as he teaches, we see that in a lot of circumstances that people would experience this amazing thing and then go and give praise to God, go and glorify God, our lives are meant to be living temples so that when people see us around the world, in our community, at our work, in our homes, they would then look at us only to be drawn upward to gaze at God. And Jesus says, in order to experience this kind of freedom, to experience your God-given purpose, to experience what I experience every single day, this peace, hope, love, joy. You must die to yourself. Friends, this is what it is to place faith in Jesus Christ. I have this chair up here. And I often, I often do this analogy. I've never done this. I'm not even, I, I usually don't use props for sermons, but I, I believe this to be extremely poignant. Because we talk about what it is to have faith in God. And so many of us, we say, yep, I got faith in God. Woo, check me off. We say that we're Christian because we come to church. I want to use this analogy for a second. Let's say, for instance, I've just uh, been running for days and days and days and days. And my legs are so tired. And I come upon this chair. And I'm like, ooh, this is interesting. My legs are tired, hmm, let's see. And I watch somebody else, and I see someone else, and they come up and draw another chair, and they sit on a chair exactly like this one. I'm like, whoa. I like what I, like what, I, like what I see here. They're not walking. They're not, uh, they're not running. And I go up and ask them, like, hey, what's going on here? Uh, and, and they answer me, well, I'm, I'm resting. My legs are tired, so I decided to rest. And I ask them, well, are your legs tired now? Well, they're they're not so tired because I'm resting. I'm sitting down in this chair. I'm like, oh, interesting. Okay. And this is the exact chair, right? Like this chair is going to hold me up too and I can experience rest. Yeah, man, have a seat. Have a seat in this chair. No, no, no. I believe you though. I believe that this chair is going to hold me up. I believe this chair is going to give me rest, but I'm going I'm to keep on walking. I believe it though. I believe that this chair will give me rest. But my belief in this chair giving me rest does not give me rest. Me saying, yep, this chair will give me rest does not give my legs rest. 
simply knowing in our heads, simply being able to say it with our mouths means nothing. And so I continue looking at the chair. My legs continue to burn. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I see the testimony. I hear this. I recognize in my head I assent to this knowledge. I have assent to this knowledge that this chair will hold me up. And so I make the decision. My legs are too tired. I can't do it anymore. And I sit down. You know what's beautiful about sitting down? It requires no work of our own. Now you might say, well, no, Justin, you, you had to squat down a little bit. No, 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 that's for, never mind. I fall down. And I sit. And I experience the grace of God in my life. Because when you fall into the seat, when you sit down, you give up complete control of your own aspirations, your own pursuits, your own reputation, your own goals, your own objectives in life. And you say, God, I can't do it on my own. And you experience the rest of God. And here's the kicker, though. You can't go walking towards your own goals, your own dreams, your own reputation, your own objectives, and stay seated at the same time. Christ calls us and bids us to take up our cross daily. Yes, it sounds awful, it sounds treacherous. And it, in the eyes of the world, it is. It requires us to fall beyond our control and die to our will and say, Christ, Jesus, God, Father, Hold me up because I can't do it on my own anymore. Have some guts. This is ministry after all. And what so many of us fail to realize is that in the midst of falling, falling is scary. It is. I mean, I think about the little kid on the edge of the diving board as his father pleads, jump, jump, jump. And we, you, me, and I, we are all those little children on the edge of the diving board. And the father's just begging us, jump, and you'll experience everything that I have for you. But instead of looking at the father, we see all of the deep waters around us. And we refuse to fall. But the entire time, God's saying, look, if you continue to stay on that diving board, if you continue to walk after your own goals, you will lose everything. Look what it says in the scripture. Because we pursue all of these big things. We pursue freedom of our, of our own volition. But the thing about it is we're human. And the minute we gain something, we always see that there's something more. And then we're lost in this amazing tangent of, of things we could go after. And before we know it, we've lost everything. Because we've spent our entire life pursuing the unattainable. But Christ says, if you should take up your cross and fall into my embrace, you will discover everything that God has for you. It's in this moment that disciples have to make a decision. It's no longer just fun and games. They were all, they were all healing people. They were casting out demons. They, were, they fell on cloud nine. And then they come to this realization, oh, snap. Jesus just got real. 
But from the eyes of the world, as treacherous as it may be, Jesus says, come and experience. Have you ever tried to explain to somebody what it is to sit on a chair? Yeah, my legs feel great. My legs are rested. I feel amazing. And they're like, ah, you just look lazy. Our lives are the primary tool in which we evangelize. If I stood up and I just was walking around, hey, do you know that that chair can give you rest? As I keep on running back and forth, back and forth, this does nothing to evangelize. This does nothing to show the grace of God. It's only when we are sitting that someone looks at us, ooh, you look different, calm, relaxed. What about when we experience the victory and the freedom of resting in the grace of God, people are drawn in. People are intrigued. They, too, want to experience the grace and rest of God. Brandy, your life is a testimony of sitting in the grace of God. And we praise God for you. Because your life as we look at it, draws us upward to glorify God. We all have this opportunity, but have some guts. This is ministry after all. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we give you all the glory. God, would you break our hearts to see you in the deep waters, to experience your grace and your rest and your hope and your joy. Father, challenge us this week as we go and we work and we pursue and we, we live our lives. God, would you, would you open our hearts to see the chair of your grace? Would your Holy Spirit break us down to nothing so that we could be built up by you God, we give you all the praise and glory for what happens in this building every Sunday morning, but this Sunday in particular. We thank you, God, for being here with us. And it's through the power of your Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, would you stand with me as we close with our Lord's Prayer? Let's read aloud together. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Is this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Be blessed. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Napoleon Church of the Nazarene. We invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 9 or 10.30 a.m. for weekly worship and community with other believers. For more information about upcoming events or ways you can connect, find us on Facebook or visit us at napnaz.org. Have a great week.